0: Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ Center life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. We are going to be in Romans chapter 7 today. If you've got a Bible, you can meet me there in Romans chapter 7. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1131 in that Bible. And we have been uh, playing with our bulletin format a little bit this summer. You've probably noticed. Susan and Mesh have been working on that. And uh, one of the things that we've done just so we can sort of simplify the bulletin is we've taken the sermon notes out of the bulletin, uh, which some of you were horrified by. But they are in the pew in front of you, and we're just going to do that from now on so if you need sermon note space uh, and that way that will always be there for you and the bulletin space we can use for other things instead so if you need a thing to take notes on you can grab that in front of you all right here we go who is this anyone know henry the eighth yeah good all right a plus gold star Henry VIII was the king of England in the Middle Ages, and he was famous for uh, being a glutton, which is not the best thing for history to remember you for, but the other thing he was really famous for was what? Wives, Wives, right. Henry was married six times, which, uh, which even in today's modern time would probably be considered excessive, but even more so when you're thinking that he is living in a time when divorce just doesn't exist. Uh, He is living in a time where the world is predominantly Catholic, uh, the the Western world, and as the Western world is predominantly Catholic, the the world and the governments of the world are governed by uh, the law of the Catholic Church and what the Catholic Church has to say. And one of the things the Catholic Church has always had a very high view on is marriage. And so divorce is just not part of the picture. You're married, and that's just it until you die. And so Henry is married to his first wife, Catherine, and Catherine, in the, the culture and the worldview of the time, uh, has one job on this earth as the one who is married to the king, and her one job is to produce a male heir so that the kingly line of Henry can pass on, because it needs to go to a man, so that a man can take over the throne when Henry dies. So Catherine has to produce, they, it's literally like they put that pressure on women. Like, produce a boy like you have that much control. And so Catherine is unable to fulfill this, this view that the world has. She gives him a daughter, uh, but she's not giving him a son. And so Henry uh, wants to get married to someone else so that he can try and have a son with them. And he goes to the Pope. Pope. Pope and says, can you please just dissolve this marriage for us? Divorce isn't really allowed, but uh, if you could just annul the marriage as Pope, just, you know, presto changeo, just say a little prayer and uh, make us not married in the eyes of God, then I can marry my mistress, uh, because, you know, morality only goes so far. Uh, I can marry my mistress and maybe she'll give me a son. And so the Pope looks at the situation and says, no, you can't do that. Uh, we're not just going to annul your marriage. The, the Bible puts such a high view on marriage, and so there's no biblical reason for you guys to be divorced. Uh, so therefore, you need to stay married to Catherine. You can only be married to one person at a time, and so that is it. And so what Henry does, instead of going, oh, well, let me look to the Scriptures and see what the Scripture says, Henry says, I'll just start my own church then, and we're not going to be Catholic anymore. And he's in England, and so they start what becomes the Anglican or the English church. And that's the roots of how the Anglican church began. And and more and more they would break away from the Catholic church and uh, become much more Protestant as time went on. But first order of business under the new church, what does Henry do? Marriage annulled. And now I can marry Anne Boleyn, who is my mistress. And Anne Boleyn also is not able to give him a male son. And so he trumps up some charges against her and gets her head cut off for treason and he marries his next wife. And history says he actually seemed to really love his next wife, uh, and she's not able to give him a son, and she falls ill, tragically, and she dies. And so he's free to marry again, he marries his next wife, he doesn't like her a whole lot, uh, so he gets that one annulled, and then he moves on to the next wife, and she's not able to produce a son, and so he trumps up some charges against her and gets her head cut off for treason, and then he marries his last wife, and she manages to uh, outlive him. Uh, She's the lucky one who manages to dodge the bullet that everybody else did. And so it's fascinating. We're considering it was a time when you were married, you were married for life, and that was just it. Uh, It's like a little bit of freedom came in that area, and Henry just went nuts and went through six wives in his lifetime. But his problem was, in his thinking, I need to produce a male son. And none of the wives were actually able to do that for him. And so uh, it's Anne Boleyn's daughter, who is Elizabeth, who actually would end up becoming queen when Henry died, Elizabeth I., Uh, And she did a way better job at leading than he did. And it's called the Golden Age of England, when she was sitting on the throne. And so there's a whole lot of stuff in the worldview going on, but Henry's problem is you can only be married to one person at a time. And that's tricky when you're trying to produce a male heir in that culture. And so because you can only be married to one person at a time, he's got to figure out ways to end all these marriages so that he can marry somebody else and hopefully produce a male heir. Because you can only be in one marriage covenant at a time. And keeping that in mind, let's look at our text today. We're in Romans chapter 7, and we're starting in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man." So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, uh, we have been in a series, just a little mini-series, and this is wrapping it up today uh, for the last couple of weeks, and we just really wanted to uh, just do some sort of foundational laying out of what the gospel is. And I know it's not the most fun messages necessarily, and there's maybe not a ton of practical application that comes with them. But every once in a while, just as your teaching pastor, it's just important to me just that we do just some good theological teaching. There's just some things that we need to know. We need to understand some things about God and about His Word. And so we started a couple weeks ago with a message called "A Tale of Two Trees," and we were talking about why the world is the way it is, and we went all the way back to the Garden, Genesis chapter two, and we took a look at why is there sin in the world why is there death in the world why are we separated from god because we said he can't really understand Much about where we are today if we don't know where we've come from. And so, A Tale of Two Trees unpacked why the world is the way it is. Last Sunday, we did a message called A Tale of Two Men. We looked at Adam and Jesus from Romans chapter 5, and we talked about how Jesus restores and undoes everything that Adam and Eve did in their sin, and how Jesus brings us back to God, and how Jesus fixes what is broken, and Jesus kind of reboots humanity. We talked about Jesus was Adam 2.0, he was the reboot, Uh, and the way that God wanted things to be and how he comes to save us from that. So we did a tale of two trees, a tale of two men, and then today is a tale of two marriages as we talk about uh, really the good news of the gospel. And that word gospel, all that word literally means is good news. That's the definition of the word gospel, good news. And I'm telling you, the longer I walk with Jesus and the more I read his word and the more I start to wrap my head around some of the things that he is and what he has taught us, I honestly believe the good news is so much better than we've been living out. It is so good. The good news is so good. And one of the good things about the good news that Paul is starting to unpack for us in today's passage is that we have moved into what is called the new covenant and not the old covenant. And we'll unpack what those words mean. But we are under uh, what scripture calls a covenant or a contract with God. And what Paul unpacks in great detail throughout the book of Romans is that God had a covenant with Israel, but we're not under that covenant anymore. We're not in that contract with God. That's the old contract, we're in a new contract with God. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what these things are. And so the main point from our story and going through uh, the idea that I really want you to grab today, we can only be in one marriage contract at a time, right? Literally, that was Henry's problem. Literally, that's the way we live our lives, and that's the law of the land, But it becomes important uh, when we start talking about our, our contract or our covenant with God. And Scripture is full of these times where God will make a contract with humanity. He will make a covenant. We don't use the word covenant a lot. But the word contract maybe might help us understand it a bit better. It's the same idea. It is an agreement between God and humanity. And in these agreements that you can find in Scripture, God says, I promise I will do these things. And sometimes there are covenants where that's it. God just makes a promise. And then there's times where God says, I'm making a promise to you, humanity, and in response, I would like you to do some things out of your commitment to me. So some covenants have a back and forth, and some covenants are just God making a promise. But Scripture has these covenants, and if you want to know more about them, go home and just Google covenants of God uh, in Scripture, and you'll get to see some of these promises that God has made. But there is a big one that God makes in the Old Testament, and it's the covenant that he makes with Israel. And as we go through today uh, this is over- oversimplifying it a little bit, but when we talk about the Old Covenant, when we talk about the law, when we talk about the law and the prophets, when we talk about the Old Testament, uh, at least from Exodus on, we are generally talking about the same thing. We can interchange these terms. There's a bit of nuance between each one, but for the sake of our purposes of understanding this, these are all saying the same thing. So when Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the Old Covenant. When Jesus uses the phrase the law and the prophets, He's talking about the law, he's talking about the old covenant, and it's all found in the Old Testament. And a big part of this law that Paul writes about a lot, the law, is that as part of the contract that God makes with Israel, he says, here are 613 commandments that I would like you to obey. This is my standard of holiness. This is the the perfect life that I am looking for in humanity to live. There are 613 laws and statutes and commandments. And so when we talk about the law, that's what we're talking about, this list of things that God called Israel to obey. But the thing is, and we'll keep coming back to this today, you can only be in one marriage contract at a time. And when God makes a covenant with people, we can only be in one contract with him at a time. And so Paul uses this marriage metaphor to talk about the change that has happened in Jesus. In verse 1 and 3, uh, do you not know, brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? And then he goes into this analogy that if a woman is married and her husband passes away, that contract is done, that covenant is over. Uh, She is free to marry another if she wants. She is no longer considered married to that husband. And so this marriage picture that Paul uses is something he's using to help us understand the shift that has happened going into the new from the old. Because God had what's kind of pictured in Scripture as a marriage contract with Israel. And God often uses this marriage image, this marriage picture. Uh, he says to Israel, I am your husband. And when Israel would worship other gods, God would say, it's like you're cheating on me. And he would use this kind of marriage picture. And it's the picture of the New Testament as well, where, where the church is called the Bride of Christ and Jesus is the Bridegroom. So God often uses that kind of picture in his word. And so Israel is in a covenant with God. Israel is in a Contract with him there is a, a kind of marriage contract that Israel is in, and yet Paul says there 's this shift happening that is so profound, and we have to understand what it is. When we gather together to celebrate a wedding, uh, part of what is happening on that wedding day is a contract, literally a legal contract is being made. And we often emphasize, well, it's the vow you're making to God and it's the vow you're making to each other. God is bringing you together. Let no man tear it asunder. And and that is maybe the most important part. But it's also a legal part, just purely legal. And we sign the marriage license on the wedding day. uh, And it's one of the coolest parts of my job because the, the bride signs it and the groom signs it and the witness signs and the witness signs. And then I sign it as one who officiates marriages. And the second I sign it, they're married. That's it. It's done. And I always just go, that's it, guys, you're in there. There's no turning back now. It's now legal. There's a contract that has been formed, as well as this vow that has been made before God. So you can only be married to one person at a time, and we celebrate that on a wedding day, that two people have found each other. And they have made this commitment to one another, and they are going to love each other and be faithful to each other. And and in our fallen, sinful world, we know it doesn't always work out that way. But that's what we celebrate on a wedding day, that two people have entered into an agreement together. But what Paul is saying in this passage is the previous marriage contract is over. The previous one is done. The covenant that God made with Israel is finished. And you can't blame the early church for struggling with this. That was all they knew about God. But Paul is saying, in Jesus, everything has changed. Everything has shifted. The previous covenant is done. Verse 4, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law, through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So, there was an old agreement, and here's just a few things highlighting. Here's a few elements of that old contract that God made with Israel. First of all, it was only offered to Israel, it wasn't offered to the whole world. God made a covenant with Israel. If you wanted to get to know God, you had to basically kind of become Jewish. You had to be circumcised, you had to join the the Jewish family and live your life there. And so, it wasn't offered to the whole world, it was only offered to Israel. There was a long list of laws to be obeyed, those 613 commandments were a key element. Of that contract, priests and prophets had to intervene for you. This sounds strange to us, but the Holy Spirit was not given to everybody, the Holy Spirit was given to a few. And so if you wanted someone to pray to God for you, you went to a priest. And the priest would seek forgiveness for you and offer a sacrifice for you. If you wanted to hear from God, you went looking for a prophet. And the prophet would hear from God for you. And so you didn't approach God by yourself. You had to have others do it for you. There were a few people who were commissioned to do that under this contract. It was very much tied into earthly geography. The land of Israel is very important. The city of Jerusalem is crucially important, and especially the temple in Jerusalem. If you want to go meet with God, you go to the temple, because that's where the presence of God dwells. And so the idea of like, oh, I'm just going to enjoy some worship time in my house is not a part of your, your worldview at all. You have to go to where God is in a physical, literal place. The blood of animals were sacrificed daily. Uh, We unpacked this in a message a few weeks ago called Perfect Forever. If you want to know some more about the why we had to do that, you can go listen to that online. But there were just constant sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. There were curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience. This was built right into the law. If you obey this, here are the good things that will happen to you. If you fall short of this, here are the bad things that will happen to you. There will be punishment for disobedience. There will be blessings for obedience. And with that, your whole standing before God is determined by how well you obey the 613. Right? You know you're doing pretty good if you're hitting most of them. And I've told you before, go home and just Google 613 law, and you can find websites that will list the 613 And just start to see how you're doing on the list. Because you've broken almost all of them by 1051 this morning, just to be clear. And so your whole, are you considered righteous by, by faith? Like we, no, you're considered righteous by how well you obey this law, by how well you f- are fulfilling the 613. Their understanding of God is that. And when we fall short, God's wrath comes upon us, and, and this is the relationship uh, under the old contract. And so this contract is here, and Israel is married to God under this contract, under this covenant. But here's the thing about this one is that this was always meant to be temporary. This was never meant to be the way humanity related to God long-term. It was always meant to be temporary. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3. This is the message version just because I like the way it phrases it. It says, Until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the law. So the law was there to show us what God wanted. The law was there to keep us from wandering too far. It it told us what sin was. It told us what God wanted us to do. And so the law was there, and Paul acknowledges the goodness of it. It was there to, to keep us safe. Then he says, The law was like those Greek tutors, with which you are familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. And so your version on that last part might say the law was a guardian or the law was a protector. Um, but this way that Eugene Peterson unpacks this, this is really what the word means. The Greek says the law was a pedagogos, and that's where we get the word pedagogue from. And so they were, they were like teachers. And in a, if we were going to rewrite this in modern language, we might say something like the law was like a nanny. Like the law was in charge when the nanny is there, the, law, the nanny's in charge, and the nanny has authority, and the nanny can discipline and encourage and guide, but the, the authority is temporary for a nanny, right? The nanny's only in charge until mom and dad get home. And so the law was there temporarily, and it was, it was the authority. It was how you measured your life, but it was always meant to be temporary, and I love the way it's phrased here, that it was there to help you get to where you needed to go, It was there to show you something of who God was, to show you what sin was, to show you the good that God wants us to do. But the main reason the law is put into place, Scripture says, the reason those 613 exist is so that we look at that and we understand, wow, I fall short of this. Right? I'm a sinner. Like there, there is something in me that wants to cross those lines. There's something in me that doesn't want to obey them. There's something in me that says, I don't need God. I can do my own thing. It's offensive for anyone to try and tell me what to do. There is something in us that crosses those lines and wants to. When you're driving on the highway and the speed limit's 100, I'm not sure how many of us go, oh, 100, the law of the land. And how many of us go, how much over 100 can I go? without getting a ticket? Like, what's the... Because that's what law does. Law creates this legalistic approach to things where it becomes, how far can I get up to the line or cross the line, maybe, without getting in trouble? I was a youth pastor for a little while when I started out, and, uh, and it came up often when a guy and girl in the youth group were dating of just, you know, like, like physically, like how far can we go before it crosses the line into sin? Uh, it comes up all the time. And so that's, that's what law does. Like, there is a standard, and it's real, and the standard might even be good, but there's something in us that says, like, how far, like, is this sin? If I go a little over, is that okay? Like, how long till I get in trouble? Uh, it can often be how we approach the rules. But this was always meant to be temporary, right? The law was there for a time to show us our sins so that we would acknowledge we need a savior. We can't save ourselves. No matter how hard I try, I can't fulfill the 613. There is something just within me that is broken, that wants to cross the line, that wants to be selfish, that wants to seek after pleasure. I can't fulfill the 613. And so the law is not there to make you perfect. The law is there to show you where you're not. And it's there to show you what you need, which is, I can't do this myself, I can't save myself, so that hopefully we will acknowledge, in God's eyes, that we need to be saved. We need help. We can't do this on our own. And so, this is the contract, the law is the contract that Israel is under. Can we be under more than one marriage contract at one time? No, we can't. We're not Mormons. We can't. We don't live that lifestyle. Like, you're married to one, and I want you to see the starkness of of this picture of marriage that Paul uses in this passage, where he is essentially saying, you are as bound to obey the law as a woman is bound to her deceased husband. Like, that is the picture that he uses. Like, that is how much you are bound to that. If Sarah and I, if, you know, if she passes away, and she's not going to, she's going to live for 40 or 50 more years in Jesus' name. But if Sarah were to pass away, we're not still sort of married, right? We're not still connected in that way. Paul says, no, like when someone passes away, that marriage ends. And, and that contract is done. And he uses this really stark picture to say, that's what the old covenant is to those of you who follow Jesus. You're dead to it. You're not bound to it. You are not under that contract anymore. You are as bound to that law as a woman is bound to her deceased husband legally. That is how much you you are bound to that. And so do we have to obey the 613? Do we have to obey the Ten Commandments? Are we bound to follow after those things? This is going to sound blasphemous to you, but the answer to that has to be no. There's a great big but coming, just to be clear. But it ha- if we are dead to the old contract, then we are not bound to it at all, because that's what death does. We are dead to it, scripture says. And yet there is something within us as churches, this whole idea of the grass is greener, like there is something where where you know, we are constantly being pulled back into the old. And it's such a common thing that multiple books in the New Testament deal just with this problem. The book of Galatians is dealing with Christians who have come into the new covenant and yet keep falling back to the old. The book of Hebrews, that's basically the point of the whole book. We've come into the new contract, and yet something pulls us back into the old. And there's something in the old contract, one of the marks of it, uh, was that men were circumcised. That was one of the commandments. It was one of the things that set God's people apart from all the other people in the world is that men were circumcised. And in the new contract, we don't have to be circumcised. Woohoo! But one of the things that they struggle with in the New Testament in the early church is, okay, God's people have always been circumcised. We're in this new contract with God now. Do we still need to be circumcised? And some thought yes and some thought no. And you'll read in the book of Acts about the circumcision group or the circumcisors. And they were ones who were going around preaching, you must be circumcised, even as, as you've been saved by Jesus. You still have to do it. And uh, you know, the apostles are appalled at the idea. They say, No, like that's old contract. We're not under that contract anymore. When Sarah and I moved here from Leamington, we sold our house in Sudbury, we bought a new house here. I don't still sort of own the old house. I don't get to go in and enjoy that house. That, that contract is done. I'm in a new one now for my new house. I'm in a new agreement with the bank, and so we're, we're not bound to that old thing anymore, but here's what we do instead. <laughs> So we would say, "Why be circumcised? No, that's old contract. That's so stupid. You don't have to be circumcised as a Christ follower. As a Christ follower, you need to obey the commandments, and God's mad at you if you don't, and the punishment of God is coming upon you if you fall short, and you need to measure your standing with God by how well you follow these things. That is still very much a view in the church, and this is a view of some of us in the room, and that's why some of you are looking at me right now and saying, this sounds almost blasphemous but I'm telling you the good news is better than maybe we have understood. Because if I'm dead to the old contract like a marriage, then then how can I be bound to obey that. How can those policies and blessings and curses apply to me if that contract is dead and I'm under a new one with God? And so there is this picture of of newness coming out of this, and yet there still always seems to be something in us that wants to drift back into legalism. And just my standing with God is measurable by how well I follow these things. And if I do good, then God likes me. And if I do bad, then God hates me, and and my whole standing is tied up on the things that I do for him. And yet, Paul finishes the passages by just making clear, we're in a new marriage contract now. We're in a new covenant with God. And the new is better than the old, times a million. The new is better. So he says, now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law. Hear that again. We're released from the law. Can I say that again? We're released from the law. We are released from the 613. We are released from that so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul would write in Colossians, God took the 613 symbolically and he nailed it to the cross with Jesus. He took that list that called us sinners by God's standard and he nailed it to the cross, killing it with Jesus. And we are now in this new way of the Spirit where we can actually know God face-to-face, where we can actually be filled with his spirit and experience his presence. And that doesn't actually make us more sinful. It makes us less sinful as we walk with him. And so as, Je- as Jesus goes to the cross, I mean, he fulfills the 613 perfectly. We talked about this last week. He fulfills it perfectly. And then as he dies, it dies with him. But that's not the end of the story, because as he comes to life in a new way, we come to life in a new way. And we are invited into a new contract with him. It's such a clear theme in the New Testament. uh, The book of Hebrews, as it's talking about the difference between the new contract and the old contract, Hebrews 8.13 says this, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Oh my goodness, obsolete. You can't buy a Betamax VHS or Betamax VCR anymore, right? It's obsolete, it's outdated, it has disappeared. You can't go to Best Buy and buy an 8-track anymore. It's obsolete, it is outdated, it has disappeared. And this is what scripture says about that old contract. The old contract is obsolete. And if you're struggling with the, well, how do I know? Like, do I obey that or do I obey this? Just ponder, what does the word obsolete mean? It means it's done. It means it's over. And what's obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. We are under a new contract with God. So here's the big but that I talked to you about before. Because some of you are going, oh, so there's no standards now? What, there's no, we don't have to follow the commandments anymore? So there's no, that's, that's the opposite, actually. Because there were 613 laws and commandments, and we're not bound to follow that list anymore. But here's what Jesus does. He doesn't undo any of the commandments, but he completely reframes them to make it actually way easier for us to understand what God wants. Because there were people, and there are still people in the world, who give their life to just memorizing the 613, right? Because if you want to know how to please God, you need to know what the 613 are. And yet, that's just so much to do. Like, that's so much to remember. And so what Jesus does is reframes the whole entire thing. This is Matthew 22. He talks about it in Mark and elsewhere as well. He's asked, what's the most important commandment? How do we do this? And Jesus says this, love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, all the old covenant hang on these two commandments. You can sum it all up. The 613 are summed up perfectly in two. Love God and love others the way you love yourself. If we loved others with the same selfishness with which we governed our own lives, there would be not a problem in the world. Love God and love others. So Jesus doesn't really negate uh, the, the commandments, and it's certainly not where some people take it, which is in the age of grace. There's no standard. I get to do whatever I want because it's grace. Like, that's not good either. But what Jesus does, and Paul would confirm this later, Paul would say the whole Old Covenant is summed up in loving God and loving others. And it's so much more helpful because when you're talking to that pair of teenagers and they're asking, well, how far are we allowed to go physically before it crosses the line into sexual sin? You know, if the Bible doesn't talk about that specific, if you don't have a specific answer to the question, then love becomes a much easier way. When we are at these, these moral dilemmas and these crossroads and we're not quite sure what to do, love becomes the way we make our decision. And so you say to the young man, You know, if you love God, you want to honor him with your body. If you love this girl, you want to honor her purity and honor her virtue. So let that make your decision, rather than, here's a standard. How close can I get to it and cross over and, and, and back down? Bruxy Cavey tells a story of he goes to Germany with his family on a trip. His wife's family's from Germany. And he gets on the Autobahn, which, if you know, has no speed limit on it whatsoever. And so he is really excited about this. I'm going to open the car up. I'm going to get it going. And as they're getting on the ramp to get onto the highway, his wife says to him, kind of jokingly, but also kind of serious, just remember that you love your family. <laughs> and he said, that changed the way I drove because my girls are in the back seat. And so it's not that I didn't have a bit of fun on there, but he said, it's, you know, love says I need to keep my family safe. I, I can't do stupid things. Uh, I need to, to have that govern my decision. And love actually often takes us further than law would, right? Because Jesus says, okay, it's great if you don't commit adultery. That's good. That's the commandment. But I tell you, don't even lust after someone who's not your wife. Like, that, that's love, right? Law is don't cross this line. Love is honor your wife to such a point where you're not even thinking about anybody else. That's actually further than the commandment. And so everything gets wrapped up here. And the standard, there is still sin, there is still holiness, but it just gets reframed. And I don't have to memorize 6.13. I only need to memorize two. Live my life in a way that loves God. Live my life in a way that loves others. And where we've looked at some elements of the old covenant as the new covenant comes in. These things start to shift. The old was offered to Israel. The new is offered to everybody of all tribes and tongues and nations. The old was governed by this long list of laws. The new is governed by love. Love is the key commandment. Priests and prophets used to intervene for you. Now we can all boldly approach the throne of grace ourselves. The old was tied to earthly geography, now God's spirit has been poured out, we can encounter him anywhere. The blood of animals was sacrificed daily, the blood of Jesus was sacrificed one time, we don't need to do that anymore. And where there were curses for disobedience and blessings for obedience in the law, the New Testament says that the curses fell on Jesus on the cross, he became a curse for us, and all of the consequences of falling short of the law fell on him, so that they don't have to fall on us, and that the blessings are released not because we were really hard but because of his goodness and grace every blessing has been released to us and our standing with him is not determined by how well i live up to this impossible standard his standing is determined uh, because of what jesus has done for me i'm not righteous because i'm so great i'm righteous because jesus has called me righteous and made me righteous in god's eyes i am justified before god because of him We talked about last week that word justified, the kind of Sunday school definition of it is, it's just as if I'd never sinned in God's eyes. I am perfect forever in my heavenly standing. I can't add a thing to it. But if I live this life of love, it means I'm going to live a life that seeks to please God. But the motivation is not fear of wrath as much as it is love and gratitude and devotion for what's been done for me. And so when you put the two side by side, the old contract and the new contract, and you start to compare the two, the question has to arise, why would we ever want to go back to the old Why would we ever want to live under that anymore? Why would we ever want to always be worried about whether God's happy with us or mad at us? Always be worried about where we're falling short of the 613. Always be worried about the curses that are going to fall on us. Why would we ever want to go back there when the good news is so good? When the new contract is so good? And there's a reason we still have an Old Testament. There's a reason, you know, that we don't just rip it out of our Bibles. Like, there's a reason that it's still there. And we believe, Scripture says, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful. It is useful for us. And not all equally applicable to the life of the Christ follower, because we're under a new contract now, but all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful. If we're asking the question, how do I love God? How do I do that? How do I live in a way that's pleasing Him? Well, reading the old contract can help us understand that. It can help us get to know his heart. It can help us see how he interacts with people. As long as we understand he is interacting with them under the old and that things are different now under the new. But we can still get a sense of the heart of God, the holiness of God, the purity of God. But if you look at, say, the Ten Commandments, and and so we say, well, we're not bound to the Ten Commandments. We're bound to love. However, this is the point Because if I love God, then there's going to be no other God in my life but him. If I love God, I'm not going to take his name in vain. If I love God, I'm not going to let idols rise up that compete for my affections. And if I love others, I'm not going to murder them. I'm not going to steal from them. I'm not going to lie to them. If I love well, I fulfill the 613 just by loving and it's just an easier way for us to, to see the world and to understand the world. And so we, we still honor the Old Testament. We honor all of Scripture. We need to understand the context of which the Old Testament people are living. They are living as people under the Old. But we still get to know God. We still get to hear that story. We still get to see it come together. Come on up, worship team. We're wrapping up here. All right. Who would like to stone me for blasphemy at this point? We have an email address questions at Meadowbrook.ca. A message like this might well raise some questions. Uh, we are happy to keep talking. We're happy to grab a coffee. We're happy to, to chat by email and just uh, answer some of these things and wrestle through it together. And, and we say this, you know, from time to time here. We probably could stand to say this more, like we are all, me and mesh and everyone. We're just wrestling through this walk with God, just like you are. We are all just, we're wrestling through the scriptures and we're trying to, to get a handle on it and we're trying to, to do it together and bring understanding together. So we love the conversations that come up. Uh, and so please don't ever be shy about, uh, about chatting about this here. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law that pointed out your sin and because you were a sinner meant you died. We have been set free from that. And we are set free to the new law where we actually get to to walk with God face to face, be filled with his spirit, know who he is. And yet we can still feel that condemnation sometimes. I did this stupid thing today. Oh, there is now no condemnation. There is now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none. There is no condemnation left because you've been set free from the old contract and you've been brought into the new contract. And in the new contract, you are forgiven because he's good and forgives you. You are righteous because he is good and called you righteous. You are perfect forever, not because you literally yourself are perfect forever, but because Jesus has proclaimed you perfect forever because of what he has done for you. So the law's there to show us that we need that. And then Jesus comes to save us out of that and to bring us into a new and much better contract. A few weeks ago, we started off with a tale of two trees, talking about why things are the way we are, why sin is here, why death is here, why evil exists in the world. Last week, we did a tale of two men, talking about how Jesus undoes everything that Adam did. And then today was a tale of two marriages. We are only allowed to be in one marriage contract at a time. And we're not in the old marriage contract anymore. We're in the new. Would you stand with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for this good news. Thank you, Lord, that the good news is better than maybe we've understood it. Thank you for the forgiveness that is available, for the purity that you grant to us, for the fact that we screw up even this morning, and yet your love for us never changes, that we are forgiven because you are good, that we are cleansed because you are good, that Your goodness and your kindness lead us to repentance, to salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you give. And we are so grateful, Lord. And in that gratitude, we want to offer you our worship now as we get ready to close. So be blessed by this gift that we bring you. In Jesus' name, amen. And Lord Jesus, we uh, we thank you thank you that because of what you did on your cross we are now free we are only bound to you now we thank you that we are no longer bound to the law because of what you did on the cross you died and you bled and we thank you for that so now we can walk in freedom and light and in truth and we love you and we ask that you fill us with your love this week we pray these things in your name amen so of us are going to be at the front here. if you want to pray, talk to someone have a great week we'll see you next week